Welcome back to another episode of Epsilon Reporting on air, on air, on air, on air. All right, and we're back. Uh, I'm joined by Cole. Hello. And uh, he wanted to share uh, a little bit in regards to depression, but more importantly, the way out of it, uh, at least for him. And so first off, tell me about the depression you experienced. Was it like heavily linked to anxiety? What kind of depression was it? So before I answer that question, I I have brought you a little gift that I would like to give you. It's a little something I found on my hike. I know that you have a fascination with animal what bones, and I found this, this is awesome deer vertebrae. I believe it is. Yeah, spinal column. Oh mm-hmm. my god! I like how you waited until we started this, <laughs> dude. Thank I you. I thought it would be more effective. Yeah, <laughs> just to derail it like halfway through. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, just to start, just to yeah. start off saying that, dude. This is I not really serious. <laughs> um, micro tangent, and then I swear to God, we'll get into the podcast, but um, I hung out with uh, uh, Caitlin, and we hydro uh, painted some of these hydro screened. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You like dip them in like the the paint on the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, yeah. And then as you pull it out, it like perfectly adheres. That would be cool. It was really cool. <laughs> but uh, thank you. I love these. I always thought they're. Uh, it's a little sci-fi, but I always thought they looked like spaceships. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, they they definitely have a cool look. That's kind of why I, why I picked it up and brought it to you. So I thought of you when I saw it. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right. So, uh, yeah, um, if you don't mind telling me a little bit about, because the reason I, I'm curious about this is I, I know I have the insider trading info on where you're going with this. Uh, but I'm curious what, like to what degree will it resonate with other people? And so what kind of depression did you experience because there's a wide swath of different types of experiences right yeah and, and it's kind of hard to say like exactly what type because i don't know what like other types of depression yeah, necessarily like are you don't know yet. right but uh i was definitely um like very very low self-esteem it really started in like like high school i would say like kind of as puberty would hit and um i kind of started to realize like i wasn't popular you know, like you ever had that moment like in high school or like, you know, I, it was for me, it was more like middle school where mm-hmm. I kind of realized that like, I'm not popular, like people don't like me. Uh, and then from there, uh, I tried really, really hard to be liked by people. Uh, and then that just kind of, it just never really worked, you know, like I, I never really felt fulfilled. I never felt like I was popular. Uh, and so I just got really down on myself, um, you know, and, and I think like, yeah, that was kind of the base of it. Uh, yeah, feeling isolated. Yeah, so definitely feeling isolated. And then just, yeah, just that feeling um, a little bit of anxiety, but it wasn't so much anxiety as it was just uh, feeling like I could not make the positive changes in my life that I wanted. Uh, so from there, pattern. what's the point? Like, why why should I continue living if my life is, I, I don't feel like I can make my life better. Mm-hmm. So all of us go through discovering different coping skills, uh, whether it's through therapy, um, uh, introspection or uh, other things what was the biggest thing like kind of turning mm-hmm. point or that thing that you implemented in your life that helped so yeah I've tried I've tried a lot of different stuff um, I've tried therapy uh, and which, which was which was effective uh, I'll, I'll give it that but it wasn't as effective as I was hoping uh, maybe it didn't give me greater perspective it just kind of made me feel better about the things I already knew um, I've tried weed as a coping mechanism and that worked at first because mm-hmm. um, it makes you really introspective 
but it kind of lost it had diminishing returns on that uh the effect of my depression but um the reason i wanted to have this podcast today is because uh, i've been using psilocybin uh and psilocybin mushrooms magic mushrooms to uh, treat my depression over the past year uh and i kind of want to talk about like how that has really affected me um First off, uh, did you want to get into mushrooms? Uh, was it purely recreational at first? Did you? Yes. So originally, uh, I got into acid LSD when I was in, in high school. I was like seventeen, I think, when I first took it, mm-hmm. um, and it, it was it kind of gave me like a it gave me definitely a big mood, mood boost for a short time, and it kind of kind of helped me uh, dissolve a lot of like uh, boundaries that we think exist mm-hmm. that don't really exist. Things that are just kind of human constructs that you should maybe acknowledge, but don't, uh, don't, uh, full, totally believe in, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so how you said for the past year is when you started getting more yeah. into mushrooms. Yeah. And I had taken, uh, mushrooms recreationally before. Uh, but in the past year, uh, I was just really curious, especially with um, mushrooms being decriminalized in Colorado recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were studies done on how mushrooms have a positive effect on depression. So I was going to try it. So I tried a, a couple different like methods of taking the mushrooms. Um, mm-hmm. Typically, I would take it in a tea. Specifically, the dosage is where I where I varied. So I, I started off by kind of microdosing, like once or twice a week, uh, which is about two gram or 0.2 grams, maybe about around that. As usually, I shot 0.2 grams. Uh, so I started microdosing, and it was okay. It was like it kind of gave me a mood boost, but also kind of made me feel a little like little awkward i would say mm-hmm. during the day like i feel like um i felt good about it i felt my mind my mind felt like it was functioning properly i felt good during the day but i felt like maybe my productivity was kind of diminished um by doing so like distracted yeah i was like distracted i would uh things i would i was a little more anxious too so like um if i like made a mistake at work and I, at, th- at this time i was working at a furniture store doing a, like a small consignment store for furniture basically uh and I, if i made a mistake or like you know drop something or whatever i would get really anxious about it so things were a lot more intense mm-hmm. which i uh it was kind of fun, I guess, but I don't think it really helped me in that depression. So for, it sounds like for the acid, it was more recreational. Yes. Uh, for the mushrooms, were you, uh, was it recreational as well? Or were you like, I've read all these reviews or I've read these uh, studies and I want to see if this can be clinical. It was, it was kind of in the middle. Uh, I was kind of like curious of like, you know, I wonder if this would like kind of help, help me feel better. Um, cause especially like last year I was, I was struggling a lot. Um, like my life was like going, going pretty good. Um, but I was still feeling really depressed. Uh, so I was kind of wondering like, is there something I like I could use to like maybe kind of balance that out to help me feel more positive about the positive things in my life? So yeah, it kind of started out like that. Uh, just kind of curious of how it would affect me, but more so doing it at first, just kind of for fun. Um, and it's kind of hard not to take like psychedelics and any drug. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of trying to have a good time because that's frankly that's the best way to have a good experience mm-hmm. on psychedelics. If with that you, mindset, if you try to go in with these intentions, I really want to confront this about myself and this and this, that may or may not come up. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you were trying to focus on one thing and then something else comes up and it demands its attention and it's really hard to switch that gear. So if you let that kind of stuff come naturally, I found it a little more manageable. Yeah. I feel like, uh, sometimes it's almost like in a conversation when, uh, you can't remember what you were going to say, then mm-hmm. you're like weirdly quiet because you're just constantly looking for what you were going to say instead of like yeah. letting, uh, letting it be self-exploratory. 
and I, I found it a lot on psychedelics. If, if I go in with a intention of trying to confront something about myself, like especially if it's something I don't like, mm-hmm. like if I'm like trying to, if I'm taking like acid or mushrooms, like saying like, okay, I want to play video games less. So I'm going to confront why do I play video games so much? Then you get into the trip and suddenly you just don't care. It's like, I don't, why, why was I concerned about this in the first place? Mm-hmm. And now you, your whole intention for the trip is now gone. So I, yeah, I found it a lot better just to go in with no intention and just kind of see what my sub- subconscious decides to surface. Yeah, start to focus on, well, so first off, did you see any kind of uh, major benefits from the microdosing? Uh, I don't think so, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, it, made me, it made me more stressed. Uh, is kind of what it did because if, if you know like two days a week I was having more anxiety because of the microdose um, it felt like my entire week was more stressful and more intense oh wow almost uh, backfiring a little bit so a little what bit. was the next step uh, so then I started to maybe take uh, I started taking it less often and I started upping the dosage so I started doing like um, I, st- I think I kind of just went from 0.2 grams straight up to 2 grams because mm-hmm. uh, that's like 2 grams is kind of the recommended dosage mm. for like beginners so that's like you know it's enough to really you know like you'll feel it for sure mm-hmm. but it's not enough to totally like blast off um so i kind of went up to that and i took it maybe once a month mm-hmm. like two grams a month uh and it has to be i, I never scheduled it um, nothing like that like i used to schedule my microdoses, never scheduled uh any anything higher uh, in any of the higher doses because it, it was always just feels like the right time mm-hmm. uh, obviously never i would never take two grams and go to work I would always be like at home or at night if I have a day off or just, you know, don't have anything going on tomorrow. Um, yeah. And any benefits from the two gram? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I definitely found a much greater, uh, mood improvement throughout the entire week. So, um, and this is kind of, this kind of why I wanted to get into, uh, the ego. So, um, do you know, do you know what the ego is? Um, yeah, it sounds, at least to my understanding, it's uh, basically a the result of the default mode network inside of the brain uh, that makes sure that everything's in check. Uh, so the ego kind of, uh, so much about being a human is a balancing act, whether mm-hmm. you're doing too much or too little. And um, at least the studies I've seen uh, and the, the theories is that the ego, uh, dubbed by Freud, is um, basically just the thing that keeps everything in check. Make sure that you're not doing too little or too much. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a great explanation of it. Um, so yeah, I, I feel you know a lot of basically any psychonaut, anyone that's taken psychedelics, uh, most of them will claim that they understand what the ego is, and that most of them will claim that they have had an ego death. Um, I found that more often than not, a lot of these people don't actually understand what the ego is, mm-hmm. and they may have had an ego death, but they didn't know what it was. They just thought it was just an uncomfortable part of the trip. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found in uh, taking higher doses of psilocybin, um, I found a huge, huge ego effect or huge ego death essentially. Um, so how I think of the ego uh, is the source of anything that you find satisfying and dissatisfying in life. Uh, I'd like to focus more on the dissatisfying part because that seems to be um, most people's concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ego tells you that I'm not happy with the place I live in. It's, I'm not happy with the way my body looks. I'm mm-hmm. not happy with the amount of sex I'm having. It's this part of you that tells you, you should change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a very, very useful tool in Western culture because 
Western culture, it, it requires you in order to be successful, it requires you to change certain parts about yourself and to work more, you know, to, to be more productive, which requires an ego to keep things in check. Mm. Yeah, and uh, we could do a whole podcast on Western society, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, how can you be better? Nothing is nothing reaches any kind of point of peace. You have to constantly be off balance, in a sense, uh, to maintain that same progress that's yeah. expected. Yeah, in us. Western culture, in order to be successful. Yeah, in that Western sense. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. Um, so, two things I want to uh, just circle around to uh were you able to experience that this ego death or before that uh ego disillusion i've heard it called both Mm -hmm. things so on two grams you felt that uh to an extent yeah and it's it's always a spectrum it's not just like your ego's dead you know it's it's always uh most of an ego death is the dying part of it in my experience at least Mm -hmm. um unless you take something like dmt which kind of just like rips you away from your body right away um things like psilocybin and even acid to an extent but i've felt more ego death on psilocybin Mm -hmm. uh it's kind of just this slow uh dissolution of the layers of your ego because those layers of ego they build on top of your base self Mm -hmm. into what you know you think is important you know that all that so yeah, it's like a facade on top of a facade yeah and, and then the reason the reason why ego deaths are oftentimes so uh uncomfortable for people is because the ego wants to stay the ego wants to be there it's it's a useful tool and especially if you grew up in western culture uh you come to the belief that you need that ego to change and i think that's a lot of people struggle with depression mm-hmm. is that they feel something dissatisfied in their life they feel an uncomfortable feeling something that they don't like the ego tells you you need to change it you need to start changing it right now. Now that creates that creates a ton of unhappiness in your life if those changes aren't being positive on that depression. Yeah, it's almost like a misguided parent that says you need to change this, but it has no insight on how. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so um, I, I've learned uh, basically at the end of every ego death I've ever experienced or thought I experienced, maybe. Um, you always, I'm always left in this just state of like bliss, of just this really happy state. So what I learned from that uh, is that the ego, it's it's the part of you that tells you that you don't like being depressed. Do I still get depressed now? Absolutely. But I have seen what it's like without that ego, without having all those layers of I don't like this about myself, I don't like this about my relationships with people, I don't like all of that so when that goes away all you're left with is just kind of this this admiration for the beauty of life Mm -hmm. so it's like uh it's like if you've been seeing black and white your whole life and you put on those colored glasses those supervision glasses you know um and now suddenly you see everything in color and it's incredibly beautiful and then someone takes those glasses off right away you still you now see them black and white again but you are aware of the beauty that is inherently in everything well, so um, also to kind of build on top of that black and white metaphor, um, it, as this relates to the depression that you've experienced, uh, sounds like for a decent amount of time, and uh, it also from other conversations I've had from with you, uh, sounds like a lot of this has helped diminish that depression. It shows, like let's say you're walking down a black and white hallway, and the hallway is white and each door is black, 
when you put on those other glasses, you realize that there's the occasional, all the doors are blue and there's mm -hmm. the occasional red door. And you're like, oh my gosh, these are different doors. As soon as you walk through one, you might discover a, uh, a new habit or, or discover an old habit that has been lurking under the surface that's been keeping you from happiness or a new habit that can help uh, promote happiness, promote positive feedback loops. That's kind of the whole thing that I've uh, kind of seen about psychedelics mm -hmm. as they relate to depression is that they're amazing at allowing you to see this pattern, this somewhat, uh, and in certain cases, self-destructive mm -hmm. pattern and kind of work your way out of that. So, yeah, um, I mean, once you, once you like dissolve, like, so if we're going off that layers of ego that I'm mm -hmm. kind of talking about, if you dissolve those layers of ego that you maybe weren't even aware that, that, that they were there when it comes back, which it will come back, mm -hmm. you know, ego deaths are not permanent. They last, they're usually very, very short lived. If not, you know, a few seconds, if not, you know, like a half hour at most, um, when it comes back, you actually have the ability to think, you know, I was at there, I was in a state where I did not have this layer. And I felt happier. I've, I felt better about myself in that state. So do I really need that layer of ego on, on top of myself? So, I, I mean, I would say that, like, psilocybin has not directly affected my depression. I still get depressed. I still get depressed to a lot of times the same extent that I always have. But what it has done is helped me change my perspective on what I think about that depression. Because, mm -hmm. you know, before, like, especially when you're in high school, uh, like when I was in high school at least, like, when I got depressed, um, I really, really wanted to change. I really, you know, I, it, it was, it was this, this indicator, this indicator light in my brain that was saying something's wrong. You need to change it. Mm -hmm. Now I, I feel that, you know, when I feel that depression, I just acknowledge it as just a feeling. And yes, you, maybe you should listen to it sometimes, but maybe you shouldn't. It's just something that's in your brain that's just hanging out. Mm -hmm. You don't need to totally acknowledge it. It's, it's something that oftentimes goes away over time and it will, will fluctuate. Um, so well, basically, uh, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. I have uh, kind of my own theory that I've worked on and implemented in my own life is the understanding that, yeah, absolutely acknowledge it, but don't dwell on it. Because what I would uh, find and kind of the way I think about it is that every second that you spend like just dwelling on something like feeling really bad about something um like let's say let's say you mess up and uh, like stupid mistake you go on a camping trip and uh forget uh some tent posts or mm -hmm. something like that uh in the past uh, i've experienced where like I'll, I'll just beat myself up about it and be like what the hell mm -hmm. like this is this is uh like part of the titular element of camping this facilitates my ability to camp how could i have forgot that what's wrong with me am i stupid whatever and goes down a kind of that own darker path of thinking and what I realized and kind of uh, as a thought mechanism that I've used to break myself out of that and I probably got that uh, from psychedelics is to say every moment that I spend thinking about what I could have done better is wasted energy. That mm. same amount of energy could have been uh, redirected into changing. Maybe, hey, uh, how about I, when I get to this campsite, I have Google Docs on my phone, I'll offline make a list of all the things that I now uh, mm. have a, a new perspective on, very important for camping, and then in the future, every time I go on a camping trip, I will review this document. Yeah. And so that was huge for me is like 
I think to some degree, uh, depression or like a, a sad uh, form of thinking or like lower energy form of thinking is the base state of the brain. And so I disagree there, but c- uh, keep going. It's interesting. So for mine, I, I feel like the base state of the brain is kind of this lower energy, almost kind of like depressive activity. And that to build a happier thought, uh, also negative, angry thoughts, sad thoughts are, uh, at least for me, very uh, self-continuing. They, mm-hmm. they just allow myself. I can almost get drunk off of anger or something like that. And I can be... Just it, it is intoxicating. It, it's, yeah. it's that self-absorbed intoxication. You know, you yeah. like to think about yourself, and being angry is a self-concerning topic. And that's probably uh, we'll get back into the ego because that's probably in relationship. That's a yes. huge thing about the ego is it is concerned of you in relationship to mm-hmm. X. And so, uh, yeah, absolutely, you are it. A lot of unhappiness comes from being self-centered. Mm-hmm. And um, but anyway, for me, I realized that higher or happier thoughts uh, to a lesser extent uh, for me at least uh, can be uh, self-continuing but it also takes more energy I need a if I find that if I don't exercise if I don't eat right uh, I'm more subject to these kind of more negative thoughts sure and um, also last thing about my uh, experience uh, on psychedelics is that the, the big thing and it sounds like you were saying something pretty similar to this is it simply showed me, uh, kind of like what you're saying, it comes back, but it showed me that it didn't have to constantly be. Mm-hmm. I thought I, I thought these things were built into me. I yes. thought these things made me who yes. I was. And, and I've, I've talked with people um, who were like curious about psychedelics, and I'm trying to explain to them like, that, that you know you, you have this monkey brain in you that, that this is not necessarily you like you can exist without that monkey brain mm-hmm. but they they uh, identify themselves so much with that ego that you know when I when I say something um, like I, I don't know but like when I when I when I in that conversation they just have no grasp of like but I am my ego I, I have no separation you know when I'm when I'm sitting in the chair playing video games I'm sitting in my chair playing video games I have no disconnection from myself. And I think that is just what Western culture teaches us because that's what makes us thrive in this culture is always being engaged with your surroundings. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. Uh, You are what you do. So Mm -hmm. that's, I think, why a lot of times in in today's world, in today's culture, uh, it's like, hey, uh, new guy to the party, what do you do? And it's Mm -hmm. like within the first introduction of that new person. Yeah. And I, I just think that we're not equipped uh, fully, uh, at least on a mass scale, to ask, who are you? Mm-hmm. And, and I've, I've actually kind of made an effort like in, in parties and stuff mm-hmm. to not really ask any personal questions, but to more just have a conversation with that person. Because in a conversation, you, know, you don't need to know each other's name, mm-hmm. but you can still converse and you can still have great conversations. Mm-hmm. You can know nothing about this person at all. And, you know, like, I, I've had people get mad at me when I forget their name. And I'm just like, hey, uh, what's your name again? And then they, they, they feel like, well, I'm not important enough for you to remember my name. But, no, it's, it's just because it's because I don't care. It's, it's not a big deal. It doesn't matter what, you're, what, what word, you know, what sound that you make that applies to you. It just, you know, what matters is that the, the substance of how we're interacting. That's funny. I do a similar thing where uh, I'll, like, just out of being cordial, I'll ask, like, hey, what's your name? Cool. Absolutely. Blah, blah, blah. And then have this long conversation. And as mm-hmm. soon as they tell me their name, it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then after having a conversation with them, realizing that this is someone that I wouldn't mind having another conversation with, I'm like, 
hey, I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, would you say your name was? <laughs> and then at that point, I like just go through my own process mm. to commit it to memory. But um, also, I wanted to uh, circle back around. You said that uh, you would take it scheduled less often, the, mm -hmm. the two grams, I believe you said. And uh, you felt better. You kind of alluded to that you felt better that whole week. So yeah. what, what was your experience in regards to it alleviating the depression? So it was kind of the, the thing I was mentioning of, uh, you know, you're seeing black and white your whole life. Mm -hmm. uh, you put on those colored glasses and then you take them off you still have that memory. It, it's the, the layers of ego have come back, but that base layer, which also comes back to where I disagree that your base self is unhappy. Mm -hmm. um, as those layers come back, you remember that those layers are extra, that they're not necessarily you, that those are extensions of yourself. Uh, so the, I mean, definitely for the, the day after like taking something like psilocybin, I definitely get like an afterglow of just like, I feel better about myself, you know, that maybe like, yeah, not everything has fully come back yet. But then, you know, next to the day after that, I usually feel a little down. I, I feel low energy. Um, my brain feels a little tired. I feel a little depressed even, mm -hmm. um, but I have a better perspective on that depression. I, I don't beat myself up, up, up uh, I don't beat myself up about it. I understand that it's a passing feeling. And that I just need to, you know, focus on my daily activities even. Just, just to, you know, don't dwell on it. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like, um, so it almost sounds like what helps the most in your depression uh, is that just the simple knowledge of kind of what I was saying earlier, that it doesn't have to be that way yes. and changes the way you think about it. Would you say that um, there's any part of it that actually like staves off the depression for a little bit longer? Like uh, I've heard a lot of people uh, call it an afterglow, anything like yeah. that. Yeah, um, only like the day after for me. I I am rarely like depressed the day after, um, mm -hmm. and I that's just you know I, I I don't think it necessarily has to do with the perspective game, but the drug itself. Mm -hmm. But yeah, as far as like staving off depression, I haven't really noticed that kind of effect. It's more in my perspective on that depression. So I, I kind of I do want to circle back to where I disagreed on uh, base self being depressed. So I, I believe the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. I believe that your base self um, is essentially is not necessarily happy, but it's not unhappy. It's it's it's, it's uh, you are in this state of just acknowledging that existence itself is beautiful. You don't need to be satisfied with the things in existence. You don't need to. You don't need to be like if you eat a piece of cake, it grants you satisfaction. What this, what I felt on like an ego death is, you just admire the cake for just being cake. It's just it grants you almost this pleasure of just seeing it as cake. You don't think of like I want to eat that cake, or I I want anything. You're just like this is beautiful. Like just anything in existence, as you just grant this beautiful effect. So, um, and and I I like to mention um, when you're born you don't really have much ego to, you need maybe like a tiny bit of ego to like say you're unhappy, you know, to cry. But your base self is this happy state. All that you know is love. So I think that that, that base state of essentially happiness is what is what a good word for it, um, stays with you your entire life. What happens is that your layers of ego will gather on top and suppress that base layer of happiness. Mm-hmm. So anything that you feel dissatisfied with, that that suddenly trumps that base fulfillment in life, mm -hmm. and I, that's a, that's a true with that's shown in a lot of like Eastern philosophies, that uh, you are born happy. You know, you you are always happy. Happiness comes from inside. 
um, this unhappiness, dissatisfaction become, comes from uh, things in your life, the things that apply to you essentially, you know, just life in general. And a lot of, you know, Buddhist philosophy says uh, that the, the source of unhappiness is actually the attachment to those things. Yeah. Um, so we'll get into that momentarily. I just wanted to clarify some statements on yep. my side. Is So I'm not saying the base level is sadness. I'm saying the base level is depression, almost in the sense of uh, like tactical. Like a commander would be like, that mm-hmm. area is depressed. That means like no activity. Uh, so or like less activity and I'm not even saying that the base level is easily obtainable mm-hmm. um, almost like a freezing level of ice uh, it's it's hard in certain climates to have uh, to even achieve a frozen level of ice yes um, so what I'm saying is that um, on top of this base level so it, uh, this is just referring to like energy wise and this is the most energy uh, I get I don't get fully Eastern philosophy into energy mm-hmm. but um, so yeah I think there's that depression or almost malaise are you familiar with that word no it's almost kind of like a like a degree of a longing dissatisfaction um, kind of like an emptiness almost and um, and then on top of that you have you have uh, like I just ate I just exercised so I might be a little tired but I feel mm-hmm. I feel energized I feel active and so this is kind of where I the same kind of thing we could do a whole conversation on um, on fitness and diet because I think that if you neglect your body uh, you start to get closer to that baseline uh, you're your body doesn't it simply doesn't have the energy to mm-hmm. build more complex thoughts that are kind of happier more engaging more motivating and more enthusiasm all of those things that uh, oftentimes lead to what people would uh, call a fulfilling life at least a more accessibly fulfilling life stem from motivation and yeah. uh, enthusiasm engagement stuff like that and that might be my western uh, upbringing but also kind of what you described I think it is possible to be fulfilled simply with existing mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think you naturally are. You just forget that you are. Yeah, I, I guess uh, I see where you're going. And uh, so there's a short little saying that I really like. Uh, I think allegedly it's from, um, I believe, Teddy Roosevelt, where he said uh, comparison is the thief of joy. And on like a large scale, kind of getting back into the ego is me compared to everything else. Mm -hmm. As soon as you know that there's other people your age that are doing way better, you could be having a great day and uh, that could easily throw you off of your vibe. Yeah. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing enough. And then triggers a bit of self-analyzing work. Um, There's this great movie. uh, It's called The Florida Project. And it's really cool in the sense of uh, it's like the story is I might be butchering it because it's been a bit, but like the mom uh, has a kid and they're really uh, poor and she's uh, soliciting herself in order to make ends meet and all kinds of stuff. They live really close to Disney World. And uh, so this kid, the whole movie is uh, for the most part told from the child's perspective and she just finds uh, like happiness and excitement in everything like mm-hmm. an old junkyard and she's like oh this is a fort to explore and yeah. she knows she's that close to Disney World and she'll like watch the rides and all kinds of stuff this constant thing going on so it's a really like innocent 
happy light approach to a very real and heavier reality. Yes. Uh, or at least, I mean, you could make the it, offer it is, that reality. It is almost a less, or it's a yeah, less complex mm. uh, model of reality. Mm-hmm. And in those in those less complex models, there tends to be less room for unhappiness. Uh, so I believe that this base version of ourself, um, and, and yes, yeah, so this base version of ourself is, is very not complex. It's very simple, which means that there is no room for dissatisfaction in life, or even statusfaction for that matter. But it's this just simple observer. It just sees. It doesn't think about anything it sees. It doesn't comprehend anything it sees. It just observes. That last comment you made uh, sounds an awfully lot like stoicism. Is that something? Has that been something that you've always kind of been led towards stoicism? Or is that something that you've started to discover since using mushrooms? I have discovered it, I would say. Like, I, I kind of understood the, the basics of, of stoicism, but I found it very hard to disengage from my ego. So, you know, like stoicism is, you know, if I'm not mistaken, like correct me if I'm wrong, it's it's looking at the things that are bad in your life and just accepting them as they are and not trying to, not dwelling on them essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've, I've definitely found... And the other end, like trying to, to some degree hold yourself from getting too excited uh, yes. or in other words, overexerting yourself or overstretching yourself. Mm-hmm. So... So I, I find I find it a very useful tool, and especially when I am depressed, of kind of understanding like, yeah, okay, I accept my depression, I accept this feeling that I'm having, it's bad. I accept my ego is telling me that I need to change this. Should I listen to my ego? Maybe not. Maybe I should. Maybe not. Think about it, like really consider it, because so many people are so wound up in their ego that they don't realize that they can unwind it and just kind of not concern themselves too much with it Hmm. yeah that they have more control over their mind um kind of loosely related i it always kind of weirds me out when i hear someone say uh oh i can't listen to that song it reminds me of my ex Mm -hmm. and i i think that no matter what uh for the most part i've never met anyone that doesn't have trauma so we're going to like overly attach certain memories uh, into negative parts of our brain because that's yes. just part of survival. Like, how can you greatly avoid this? But those, uh, I one of my favorite sayings is everything you love and hate is learned. And Yes, so, I agree. Yeah, and so with those, I, I take an immense amount of pride in um, just knowing that I have control over my mind. If there's a song mm-hmm. that I love, and yeah, my ex and I used to listen to it and she turned out to be a seething bitch, uh, I'm not going to cut myself off from that media that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And there might have to be a little bit of unlearning. But, um, yeah, so with the, uh, so I guess, how'd you, what kind of clicked for you where you started to get into stoicism? Um, I, I think it's something that's just kind of slowly developed over time. And, and like, it's it's helped me through, like, before I really got into psilocybin, uh, it, it did, like, it's kind of helped me in those, like, the darker moments of my life. I've just, you know, I just have to get through this and I'll be okay. Um, so it's kind of helped me there, I suppose. I, I like that. I So I find that a lot of times uh, for people that are pretty thoughtful, and you strike me as an individual that's pretty thoughtful. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, you'll pay me later. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of interesting that yeah, early on when you go through the, the shit show of childhood, 
uh, you come up with these different behaviors and coping mechanisms that when you're old enough to either pick it up uh, through school or just other interests, yeah. you're like, holy crap, there's a name for this. Mm. This like same behavior, this old Marky Mark, and by that I mean Mr. Aurelius, uh, talked about it a long ass time ago. And yeah. yeah. And, and I, I found that like in like, you know, like when I think I'm all being, you know, really smart and philosophical, I'm like talking about some of my friends are like, you know, there's a philosopher who uh, said that same thing like 300 years ago. Mm. I'm like, oh shit, I am not the first person to have these thoughts. I used to get bothered by that. Uh, they're like, hey, someone's already said that. And I'm like, oh, uh, <laughs> but now I, it's, uh, I love it. It's like convergent thoughts. Yeah. It's like, it, it, it doesn't that discredit thought. that you, your thought, it was still an original thought, but it's, it's interesting mm. that people have had these same experiences. And so if you don't mind me kind of jumping around, I, I kind of want to catch some of these loose ends. Yeah. I know that there's a lot of pushback on psychedelics and stuff like that. And uh, uh, that I think that's left over from years of propaganda and basically people not taking their own thoughts as their own, but instead being like, hey, mom, hey, dad, hey, Fox, hey, CNN, what do I think? Mm-hmm. Well, what should I think now? And then that propaganda is perpetuated. Uh, so a lot of people get lost on psychedelics and they, uh, they won't even uh, consider it, engage with it. And right. one of those triggers is that kind of what some would call a more stip- uh, stereotypical hippie response, which is love is, love is all. You, you were mentioning something about that. What, what's your thought with like love and how that plays into mental health or psychedelics or anything um so i i I think like just as we were talking about in the ego love and is an extension of the ego um so if you totally get rid of the ego you don't necessarily love anything you don't hate anything either um and it's just kind of like i I mean i suppose in a way you you love everything i suppose it it depends on kind of on a more acceptance level yeah yeah because i mean if you look at like i mean kids are a great example um because I was talking about like you get wine, you know, as you grow up, you get wound up in your ego so much that you forget that you have this base self. Um, as you unwind that ego, or for, as you're, if you're a kid and you don't have that wound up as much, uh, kids tend to be a lot happier than adults. And I think it's for that reason. It's because they don't have as many layers of things that they find dissatisfying in your life. Because those are all, those are all, like you said, they're learned. They're, it's a, as you grow, you develop a value structure in your life to help you survive and get around. And based on those value structures, you decide this thing is good for me. This thing is bad for me. This makes me feel good. This makes me feel bad. I should pursue the things that make me feel bad. Or, I mean, pursue the things that make me feel good. You're and a masochist. Pursue, <laughs> pursue to like, you know, suppress things that make me feel bad. Mm. I, um, yeah, that goes back to that everything you love and hate is learned. I, I wouldn't fully agree. I mean, maybe it's just me, but I know that uh, other kids can be very mean. And I have like these weird random thoughts. I'll be like enjoying a day and then my brain's like, hey, remember that one time you were a huge a-hole? And I had this aunt that was a little bit heavier set and... Um, uh, like her health was declining and I just remember like always commenting about the smell and I was like super mm. young and I was like oh it smells smells so bad in here I can't even can't even breathe and she would like <sighs> greet me with a huge smile and try to give me a hug and I'd squirm and be like oh god the smell and in retrospect I'm like what the hell dude so I mm-hmm. I think kids do lack a, a definite degree of uh, acceptance understanding yeah. I think they are more like uh, reckless happiness 
Yeah, and that's yeah, that's kind of getting into the land of like um, like you are developing like higher thought processes, mm-hmm. um, and so you you don't and you, but you still you you're developing higher thought processes, but you're not you haven't developed like social cues like you haven't developed you haven't fully developed socially. I think that's one of the benefits of the ego because it now yeah. I would have considered who am I in relationship to this woman? Yeah, my like uh, olfactory nerves uh, don't dictate her happiness or putting her down. Yeah. And so, which is, which is why I think it's important to clarify that you really need your ego. Mm-hmm. Like the ego is very, very, a very, very useful tool. That's why we um, developed it and evolved it. If you're a monk living up in the mountains away from anybody else, you mm-hmm. don't need an ego as much, which is why these monks go into the wilderness mm-hmm. so that they don't have the pressures of life uh, demanding that they pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so uh, another thing with how important the ego is, why we developed it, why we evolved it, um, that's, I don't necessarily know, I guess you could say it's directly linked with the ego. Um, You might be more well-versed, but have you heard of a uh, negative bias? Uh, negative bias, uh, I, remind me. So it sounds familiar. Just humans have a negative bias. Uh, if there's something bad, we're more likely to remember the bad thing. Yeah. If uh, we'll, we'll fixate, we'll focus on the bad thing, we'll get anxious about the next mm-hmm. moment. That makes us a sense in a survival aspect for sure. Yep, and it's kind of like a weird baseline where there's either normal or bad. Mm-hmm. Like if you're doing a bunch of good things, you're you're like hey that's that's normal that's baseline yeah and we don't reward it we don't think about it because yeah evolutionarily um we are uh like if you're satisfied that doesn't lead to a, a happy ape yeah it leads to uh, a complacent ape which could lead very easily to a dead ape and, and that's that's why we developed egos that's why we evolved with egos is because it does it it an, an ego is uh, such a good tool for uh, invoking change in your life. Mm-hmm. And that is a big thing that I feel like uh, leads to a lot of unhappiness just in general in the world is I, like we're, we are now uh, in this podcast live, happening live, oh, uh, <laughs> taking that apart and looking at it uh, on like a closer level. But I've said in the past that uh, part of the reason why, and I'm sure other wiser people have said it in the past, uh, Part of the reason why we're so unhappy or there seems to be such a rampant need for therapists, self-help books, all kinds of stuff, is that we have this brain that mm-hmm. developed 600,000 years ago. And we're living in a world where you can pull up your phone and uh, somehow statistically uh, try to match with other mates in your area. Like, what is that? Yeah. Yeah, it's freaking bonkers. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, I mean, it's just, uh, I think that a big part of it is that Western culture, that it, it encourages you to change. It encourages you to seek out things. Hmm. When um, what Eastern, Eastern culture tends to focus less on those kinds of things and more on your internal self. I guess in in that case, just to kind of delve into that, um, and I understand that you were shaped and molded in this Western culture, um, but what do you what do you kind of th- value? I guess do you, do you value progress? What to what extent yeah. do you value progress? Yeah, so so I do admire Western Western cultures in a lot of ways, specifically for uh, like I said that that uh, that uh, ability to invoke change in your life. It is very effective in that. 
Mm. Um, so I do, I do value some parts of that. Like I, I have, um, and, and I'm definitely, you know, I don't think that I would make a good monk because I do, you know, I have ambitions. Mm. Um, and I'm sure I could dissolve those ambitions given enough meditation or, you know, whatever. Um, but I don't necessarily want to. Uh, and so my, my values, I guess, tend to lie um, towards in, like in my ego and like the, the kind of that figuring out of what would make me happier. What's simply a more efficient way to go through life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have like my likes, like I, I like climbing a lot. I like, you know, playing video games, all that. Um, so oftentimes I strive to maximize that kind of thing. Yeah. I um, Have you heard of a guy by the name of... Uh, Alan de Baton? No. He's the guy that is behind School Life. Uh, that's at least where I know him from, uh, which is a YouTube channel. Highly recommend. Um, really cool. Focuses on a lot of philosophy, a lot of stoicism, and uh, just like reassuring, like, and at least stoicism for me, uh, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, just getting comfortable with worst case scenario and going from there. And so yeah. a lot of the YouTube videos are like, they start off with, we're all going to die. You, you're going to die. Everything that you stand for uh, will be gone. It'll wither into mm-hmm. dust. And, and then how can you build a happy, fulfilling life from there? So it's really nice. But um, I was thinking about him, and uh, I actually listened to a podcast with him. And the lady, uh, the host, was introducing him as a philosopher, which if you get looser with the word, I suppose I would call him a philosopher. But on some level... Uh, I don't think, I think a lot of philosophies are presented as this like structured, more rigorous, simple view of the world mm-hmm. and uh, almost like different colors. And I, uh, I think you have to take different colors to paint your own picture. If you made yeah. one colored picture, it would be weird and probably dysfunctional. And so Alan is, um, he, I would call him less of a philosopher, but rather a facilitator of communication and kind mm-hmm. of like picking and choosing the most beneficial routes, which I think is huge. I, I yeah. think some people, this is kind of another negative thing that turns certain people off, uh, is that when people talk about Eastern philosophy, I, I think they fall into the trap of binary thinking that like there are two options, extreme Western philosophy yeah. that comes with all the baggage of capitalism or extreme Eastern philosophy and detachment of material things. And I really like kind of what you alluded to, your approach of how can I also be just as driven, be a part of the the culture that got men to the moon, humans to the moon, uh, is part of this this crazy industrial connected world, but happier. How can I mm-hmm. do it? How can I come out on the other end slightly less scathed? Yeah. And, and I, I think of uh, philosophies as like, you, know, you, you in context of philosophies, as like a toolbox. So each philosophy is a different tool set and you can take tools from wherever you want, put them all in your tool- toolbox. Sometimes you find that you don't need a tool. Sometimes you find this tool is useless. Sometimes you find better tools that you want to add to your toolbox. Um, but kind of what, what I am getting at is that it doesn't matter what your philosophy is, you are still using that toolbox. There is someone behind the toolbox. Mm-hmm. So you are not your philosophies. You are not your thoughts. You are not your body. You are not any of that. You are just this observer. You are just this, this not necessarily an actor even. You're just watching kind of what is happening in the world around you. From there, you decide whether you want to do things with that. So I think, I think in, um, a lot of that, a lot of, a lot of Eastern philosophy talks about kind of like 
really trying to separate yourself from reality in a way um, and to find that 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 uh, nirvana I guess they call it um, mm. which is just kind of like I mean the way I view it is that it's, it's just that base self it's that base observer you don't feel good about anything around you you don't feel bad about anything around you but there's still I, I still believe that life is just reality is inherently beautiful is an absolute miracle and you forget that as you grow older as you get wound up in your ego you forget that life just existence in just its state is absolutely perfect it's just perfect miracle well so uh i i love that and i fully agree um i saw this meme where it was like uh you someone's like yeah i had an irrational thought and it's like your brain is uh, electrified meat, and it just had an irrational thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah what would you think was going to happen? <laughs> yeah, but um, so to tell you a little bit about my uh, stage and possibly why I uh, we have differing opinions on the base state of the mind. Um, my childhood, no one's child, no one I know uh, has a childhood that was like pristine. Yeah. And so I had a lot of stuff that I had to kind of deal with and uh, partially as a coping mechanism, I started to disengage with it and I actually don't remember a lot of my past. Like I, I think I remember like one or two teachers that I've had and like a lot of the events are kind of out of order uh, in a weird way. And um, so with that, I think that was part of a coping mechanism mm-hmm. and also I was incredibly self-centered. And so I actually don't recall a time where I was simply, I remember a time where I'd play kind of like what I was telling you about with that movie, like getting somewhere and being like, ah, this is a spaceship. Just like using my imagination to like turn whatever was around me into what I wanted it to be. Uh, But I don't remember a time where I just like appreciated the beauty and everything. And I Mm -hmm. think that I I honestly don't think kids do that. I think it does take a a degree of an enlightened mind, which to some extent needs to have kind of a more, uh, a broader perspective of the world and be like, I know all, it's kind of like the difference between um, like people that get depressed with too much news. It's the difference between not knowing or just not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I think you need to know the broad strokes of the world uh, at least to a a larger extent than a child uh, and then with that choose kind of to appreciate to accept that beauty yeah that's a that's a very good point because i mean i was i was also very self-centered as a kid um Mm. and i i also never really had a point where i i could um disengage and and just be fulfilled with just life in general um you were always you know you're always searching for something outside of yourself to make you happy yeah, and uh, oh, to finish that thought off, uh, for me, it's kind of been the opposite of uh, some of the things you said. Uh, quite a bit of it resonates with me, but I've actually gotten to a point where every year, every spring, as all the trees are blossoming and the flowers are blossoming, or every autumn or every fall, uh, or I mean winter, um, I get blown away. I'm like, holy shit, is this is this a super bloom? I've I like, found that yeah, I've I've noticed that too. Like yeah, like seasons are more beautiful as you grow older older. Yeah. Yeah, for me and I think it's stemmed directly from releasing a lot of that self centeredness. Mm-hmm. Kind of just sat there and like because self centeredness it at least embodied a state of deep in my own mind so actually uh, self-centeredness I guess a, a different way to say it is it's it made me deeply like constantly not living in the present 
And so almost as a, uh, as kind of a result of being less self-centered, mm-hmm. I've been able to live more in the present. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I actually yeah, have. Anytime you're, you're striving for something, anytime you're working towards something, you are doing so in, in a self-centered way. Mm-hmm. Well, I was telling someone recently about this where uh, I've, I also had a thought of like kind of likening it to hippie uh, mentality or culture where like live in the moment, just live in the moment. And then I'm like, that doesn't seem effective because yeah. you can't plan. You can't, what if you don't learn from your past? And so with the simple acknowledgement that the future oftentimes holds uh, fear and the past holds pain, uh, don't necessarily seek to only live in the present, still think about the past, still think about the, the future, but experience the present. That's kind yeah. of that shift in terminology that's helped me a lot. That's why I like to talk about like, like tools a lot and you're, and you know, just, you have those tools. And I think, you know, like fear of the future is an incredibly useful tool. You know, it helps us survive. Um, but it's it's just a tool that we can use. We don't need to use that tool all the time. And a lot of people forget that you don't always need to be afraid of the future. You don't always need to be in pain, you know, in pain thinking of the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the way that you can. Uh, I mean, one of the routes that you can attempt to free yourself from anxiety is because people are basically constantly afraid of what they've already experienced happening mm-hmm. it's kind of their their brain is like oh shit that's happened once we live in a world in which that happens and they're constantly expecting it to happen again and so that's kind of where that more objective uh, or stoic approach comes into play where you're like not necessarily how can i avoid everything because you can't avoid everything how can i prepare and control not what's going to happen but rather your response to it yeah yeah but uh so i i really enjoyed the talk i I know we kind of jumped into philosophy which i at least really enjoyed um did you want to like round off any other points on uh psilocybin tripping in general tripping culture anything like that um i mean i I guess i would like to say um drugs affect everyone differently Mm -hmm. um like what's worked for me uh probably won't work for a lot of people Mm -hmm. um so yeah and and then just other than that like things like uh like i talk about the ego a lot um i I don't you know if if we didn't have egos we would not be able to survive we we, we would barely be people um maybe we would be happier but our lives would be short-lived uh because we would just not be able to survive in that same way Sorry, right now, right, right now, the kitten's dog is uh, chewing on my arm. Yeah, we have trying a, to get, trying to get a new that's definitely trying to get dinner. It is, yeah, it's gnawing on my, my beefy muscles. Yeah, somehow you're, you're <laughs> a tasty guy. I, I guess so. Well, he but, stopped, so I guess not too tasty enough. Yeah, well, he's uh, a little frenetic. He's like, oh, I'm going to do something else with me. But, um... So I think this is kind of, uh, I know at the uh, first part of this, you were talking about your experience with therapy just briefly, yeah. where you said that it didn't really help immensely in regards to changing that behavior. It, well, in, in my experience, therapy was, was just about changing that behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, or it was, it was, yeah, more, yeah, changing the behavior and changing your perspective on that behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, where in this, it's kind of the same way, like things like psilocybin uh, have also changed my perspective on my behavior. Uh, I, th- I found therapy 
I, I found psilocybin. It, it grants you this like more, uh, more. What's the what's the word? Like uh, it really it really shows you um, what it's like. Because in like therapy, you kind of like you're trying to trying to find that sector of like where you need to be to be like happy in life, um, but you don't know what that is. So uh, for me, like psychedelics kind of helped me show where that was and helped me when I come back from that trip. Now I have somewhere I can like somewhere I can go, somewhere I, I know that exists in myself. Yeah, that's why um, I think therapy is really good. Uh, kind of uh, and real fast to round mm-hmm. off something you were saying earlier uh, about taking psychedelics. Uh, I highly recommend that humanity as a whole gets more engaged with psychedelics. Uh, I think that could lead to a lot of uh, ailments that we just take for granted, uh, and it could lead to a lot of those being cured or like further ameliorated. Uh, however, yeah, you made a great point. I know people that if they have like the smallest bit of LSD, they have a seizure. So, I, and that's part yeah. of the the whole thing that I wish we could push back more against the war on drugs because it would be cool if. Uh, different people that take um, antipsychotics or antidepressants they can take these tests that help um, see if you're going to have a bad interaction with it yeah yeah and so I wish mm-hmm. that that was available for psychedelics you could be like yeah. hey don't take this you're going to have a seizure or like nah dude you're totally fine and I, I think it would be like hugely helpful for, for people because I mean so there's the stuff I've been talking about of like kind of finding of like where like you know like that base self of like just feeling like totally like in total admiration for the beauty of life just as it is um you can find that through uh yoga or through meditation there's a lot of different like things that people do that people have always done yeah like ujjayi breaths yeah there's there's all kinds of techniques Mm -hmm. but a lot of those techniques like for me i I did yoga i I mean i still kind of do yoga but uh, i did a ton of yoga and meditation and uh the the issue i think was it takes a lot of effort it takes a lot of willpower to really push yourself to you know okay now i don't want to you know i don't want to do yoga right now but i know if i do yoga i will feel better and it will put me in a better state i you still have to really push yourself so for me i i feel like i don't have a ton of self-control um so when it when it came down to creating that like intense regimen of yoga or meditation to reach enlightenment as you kind of call it um it was very difficult so i think i think for a lot of people that difficulty that that barrier to entry is too high for a lot of people um Mm -hmm. even though it might be worth it a lot of people especially in western culture aren't willing to put in that effort so drugs are almost like a shortcut to that they don't last in the same way that like something like meditation or yoga does. It doesn't have as many, uh, or doesn't, you know, the, the immediate effects aren't mm-hmm. as lasting in my opinion. Yeah. Because just to plug, I'm a huge fan of self-control. Mm. If, if you were to, uh, I have kind of like a, an approach for handling a lot of different goals that, uh, for instance, I wanted to learn the piano, but instead of learning the piano, that was like way too, uh, overwhelming. So instead I learned a song and through that, I inevitably learned, 
uh, a different mm -hmm. uh, pacing, how to split the hand movements, all kind of stuff like that. So if you were to try to like, hey, I'm going to learn or I'm going to do this yoga, I'm going to learn it, master my practice is the freaking buzzword they always use. But um, I'm going to master my practice throughout that. Yeah, the end goal is that yoga thing, but you inevitably do pick up that self-control. And I think self-control yeah. is yeah. huge. Like if a genie came down and was like, I'll grant you one wish to change anything <laughs> about your body, uh, I would say I want maximum self-control. I want complete control over this. Yeah, I heard yeah. you say it. I uh, call it a monkey mind earlier. Monkey brain, yeah. Monkey brain. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, so I have this term, I call it uh, cognitive tilt shift, which uh, with photography and uh, more often with digital photography, you can do what's called the tilt shift, which is where you change the focus between foreground or background. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think we can achieve this cognitive tilt shift, which is a, a sudden, uh, more effective change in perspective through a lot of different things like uh, introspection, yoga, uh, therapy, all that stuff. And then also uh, especially psychedelics because psychedelics by definition change the way you think yeah so and it, it kind of it kind of forces you into it too like with mm -hmm. a um, a lot of people you know you could do yoga and meditation for you know 20 years but mm -hmm. if you don't have the right perspective on it, if you don't allow yourself if you don't um really focus on like just the med just the breathing if you know you're if you're sitting and meditating you're thinking about other shit you're not really meditating. You're just sitting there and thinking about shit. Yeah, you're just going through the, the motions. So it's it's a learned practice. Uh, where as psychedelics, it's a forced practice. Mm -hmm. Which I don't think it's good to take psychedelics all the time for that purpose because it's it's such a you know, it's a forced perspective, but you don't reach it naturally. It's better if you reach it naturally. But a lot of people, that barrier to entry is too much, and they don't engage in it at all. So I think for a lot of people, and I, I find this, I found this true for myself too. It it gave, it was it was just this shortcut in a way mm. to finding that enlightenment. Yeah, and not in like the negative connotations of a shortcut. Yeah, it's like uh, I. I have this, I agree that if you found it on your own, it would be more lasting, possibly more beneficial. But mm -hmm. I think the most important thing is to, I know you said you don't do it where you're like, um, I, I want to focus on just this one thing and possibly a slight deviation is not focus on one thing, but the mindset that I'm going to learn from this. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, if you're like, I think psychedelics are less appealing, at least to me. I'm still totally for them. I, I think they're a very uh, safe drug, as drugs go. Um, but if you go into it like, yeah, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get fucking weird. I'm gonna get real wiggly. Uh, <laughs> that's way less beneficial than going to a therapist. But yeah. if you go into it and say, what can I learn about myself? What can I try to uh, memorize or uh, at least journal down? And that way, in a more sober mindset, I can carry bits of this shattered perspective and try to implement it into my life. Kind of like what you were saying earlier, the reason why psychedelics were so powerful for you is because it happened on such a personal level, like straight through your subconscious that's where it originated instead of yeah. the therapist which originates yep. outside of you trying to whittle through all of those yeah, layers it, with, with psychedelics it, anything that I mean like like the reason I don't necessarily like to you know go in with an intention is because when you get to that point um, uh, what was I going to say sorry I kind of lost my train of thought for a second uh, <laughs> you're totally fine as I think I've told you in the past anything that sounds weird like 
all edit out to yeah, make it sound yeah. super smooth. Edit this out, Kenton. Mm. <laughs> yeah, right? I might just leave that one in there. Yeah. You better fucking not. Mm. Kick your ass. Or you should say something along the lines of like, I love uh, I love Jews and I hate blueberries <laughs> and I'll play with that editing a bit. <laughs> I don't know. That's a, that sounds like a trap. I don't know if I should do that. I don't know. What you're sounds like about. a bad idea. I don't know, dude. It wasn't me. <laughs> but um, yeah, so for me at least, that's kind of why I will uh, tell stories in a really long-winded fashion is because I build this world where people agree. I, I seek agreement on certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I build this world in which uh, you could see that it could be better. And then, like, there's a structure to it. I end on a point with me making my point that a lot of people forego the whole buildup. They're like, hey, uh, don't smoke cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, instead, I'm like, this, because of this, and it could have been this, in conclusion, don't smoke cigarettes. Stuff like that. that. That's to me, that's like the basis of philosophy. Yeah. Is, you know, you're cre- creating a series of arguments that if you agree to all these arguments, and I, I guess that's a, more of a logic theory, there are a lot, yeah, logic theory than anything, mm-hmm. agree to all of the arguments I set forth. Therefore, the conclusion is this. If you agree to all these prim- uh, premises, you cannot disagree with the conclusion. Yeah. And so uh, that is, at least for me, and it sounds like for you, uh, what it's like being on psychedelics. You're like, holy crap, I'm, I'm happy. I, I feel uh, free. I feel really light. I feel mobile mm-hmm. and mentally flexible. So this can happen. Now what? What's the, what's the factor? What's yeah. the missing variable? So, um, and it, it's it's very yeah it, it, that kind of state of mind um, is very difficult to reach like even on psychedelics mm-hmm. of that be, like being enlightened I guess is kind of the general like what most people understand it as. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult to reach both on and off psychedelics. I think it's easier to reach on psychedelics, but it's short lived. It only lasts it, not even the length of your trip. It'll, it usually lasts only a, a few moments in your trip. Um, or if you reach it, it's paired with the ego disillusionment, which is horrifying because it's, oh, like, I think on some level the brain thinks that it is dying. Yeah, so, so like, the reason why, like, ego deaths are so uncomfortable is because your ego is trying to hold on. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed mm. to b- remind you, oh, you're unhappy about this. No, like, don't do that. Like, keep, you know, it wants to stay. It really wants to stay. But the drugs are pulling it away. So how you you have like this physiological response to it that your ego is really trying to hold on but it's being torn away at the same time it's like you're trying to rip a kid from its mother you know it's it's just going to keep crying but it's only once that ego is gone that you are kind of left in that state you no longer feel uncomfortable you just feel you look at the world around you and you just notice the beauty in it that you've noticed before it was just under all these layers of ego and all these layers of unhappiness or is a thing that like if you're walking down a subway and you see a blue in uh, advertisement you're like that's pretty blue anyway off to this work blah 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 blah. and so yeah if you're able to experience that ego disillusionment you can bring back parts of basically what life could be like if you slowed down just a hair or rather like focused on a, on a broader swath of different things. Um, I wonder if uh, that's why they give... I'm sure you've heard about the studies where they give psychedelics to people that are um, uh, like in hospice. Mm. And it helps uh, facilitate like a really smooth transition into passing yeah. away. So, so that brings up uh, something I, I actually thought about in the car um, was seeing my grandma in hospice. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a very distinct memory. I think I was like 13 around the time. 
um, she was laying in the bed and she was just restless. She wasn't conscious. She she wasn't really awake. I don't like if she was awake. I don't think she knew I, who I was or anything like that. But she was just restless. Like she was trying to get up and move, but she just couldn't. Like she was really didn't want to be there. I know uh, my, my mom has told me that uh, her biggest fear was death. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's why it's it's because her ego is being ripped away from her, and so she was freaking out internally. Was she on that? Was she nonverbal? Uh, I she wasn't verbal at the time I was there. Um, I, like I have a very distinct memory. And if, if I understand correctly, she was kind of passing in and out. Like occasionally she would like recognize my mom. Usually she wouldn't. Um, so I don't think she recognized me. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I just remember her laying on the bed, just like, it looks like she was trying to get up, like doing everything she could just to stand up. It looked like she was like, you know, having just a bad trip and just couldn't get out of it. Um, Jeez. That was, so uh, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, uh, that was definitely, uh, like pretty impactful on like mm. just how you, how you react to being ripped away. I would have thought that, um, like fundamentally humans are uncomfortable with the ending of things uh, whether it's your favorite book tv show or I, I was wondering how much of that played into a role of a sick secular it, it's just the voice off of like google translate like cyclical or cyclical <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> anyway um how time and months for that matter uh always repeat and I wonder if, like, I mean, that makes sense to me right now if I'm like, hey, if you were going to devise a time, make it like this, yeah. But I wonder if, in an alternate reality, if humans were really unco- or really comfortable with the ending of things, what if time was just like, like, would always count up? Almost kind of like years, in a sense. And even with years, we couldn't hold on to that because uh, before Common Era, after Common Era, or before Christ, after mm-hmm. death, and uh, we restarted it. And so we're just fundamentally, like, we, we want things to just restart. That's very comforting for us. Yeah. And so um, one way, uh, I don't know, I, I would, uh, I'm curious how you feel about death, but for me, I'm not very spiritual. I don't believe in an afterlife, but also I am very uncomfortable with things ending so my workaround the way i've rationalized it to myself is that what we do we're basically like walking bank accounts we collect experiences we collect knowledge we collect um uh every bits of data perspectives and then throughout our life we can teach that to other people we can communicate it and disseminate because what makes us us there there is nothing new under the sun necessarily Um, but there's new combinations. So what makes us us, almost like how we have a unique combination of DNA, uh, we have a unique combination of thoughts. And so you can say, oh, I believe this because of this. And if you said, uh, verbalize one of your beliefs that you knew originally, like truly was an original belief because a lot of times people like will watch a Vox video and say, hey, check this thing out I was thinking of. Yeah. It's like, oh God. But, um... (laughs) If you genuinely had like just an interesting thought, whether it's in a shower, on a long drive, or whatever, uh, that is highly likely to be like within top ten percent of like unusual or rather unique thoughts, just to you and possibly a few other select people. And so, um, 
that is kind of my workaround is that we do in a sense get reincarnated uh not directly not like mm-hmm. like me to one other person but rather anyone i teach and anyone i communicate with and that's actually why um i have such a strong preface on communication that's why this whole thing this epsilon reporting is focused on communication is because the more people that we're able to talk with the more we live on uh and then when you die uh, one, I feel comfortable in the sense that when I pass away, almost like a walking bank account, it just opens up, and then that that gets that knowledge that I had gets recollected and redistributed to other people around me that I had an influence on, and then they carry that a little bit further. And also, I have the comfort of knowing that if there's someone that I that has passed away that I really admire, really loved, and really miss, I can say what. What's the biggest thing that I learned from them? What's something that I can implement into myself and possibly even teach someone else so they can live through me on to another person as well? Mm-hmm. So, that's a, yeah, that's a great perspective. Um, so I have, a, I have a little story I would like to tell. Okay. Uh, so this happened uh, actually less than a year ago, uh, about six months ago. Uh, death was my biggest fear at that time. And that was, that was really what was on my mind. Um, so I, was, I, was, I went to a, down to a concert in Santa Fe. Uh, and I remember that the night of that concert, uh, you know, we went back to the Airbnb and we were talking about, or I was, I just kind of mentioned like, you know, death, like I'm really afraid of death and none of the people I with had an answer. They were, they're just like, yeah, you know, that's a lot of people's fear. Shit happens. Um, yeah. And that, that was really, that was really scary to me that nobody had an answer for this. Um, and then, so yeah, that happens. Wake up in the morning. We start driving back to Colorado Springs. Uh, on the way home, about like two hours down the road, uh, we get into a rollover accident. So we're driving, uh, starting to snow a little bit. We hit some black ice. Car spins out, hits the side of the you know the median, um, you know with the dirt, the dirt in the middle, mm-hmm. and we just roll like three or four times. Jesus. Um, so it, like I was the least injured out of everyone, but everyone else was pretty hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I really realized is how fine of a line between life and death we actually walk. It's very thin. It's thinner than you think. Um, so kind of what I learned from that was control the things that are within your control. Don't worry about the things that aren't. You cannot control when you're going to die. You can maybe control the safe, like things, you know, wearing your seatbelt. Sure. But you're not going to control when that moment actually comes. Because when that moment actually comes, it's like, you know, you're in a roller rollover. You're in a car as it's spinning. There is nothing that you can do. You're just there. They're just in that situation. So that's kind of when, you know, when that moment comes, it'll come. There's nothing you can do about it. It's not something to dwell on because you have no control over it. I think, uh, well, how do you, uh, I think we, I mean, I, I might just be projecting, but I think to some level we have to dwell on it not necessarily have to as in we ought to but have to as in like it's just a thing that's like we're constantly reminded of it's natural yeah it's we we don't we obviously like naturally we don't like death yeah have you seen the uh the movie or the show um a good place no oh well uh, i I know i've heard about it though there's i know the concept there's a good line where uh this lady is describing what it's like to be a human to another character that's not a human and she's like yeah and like we're we're trying to do our best we're trying to help the people we love we're trying to not let other people down and the whole time we're aware that we're a little that we're always going to die 
we're always aware that we're going to die. So we're always a little bit sad. There's always that undertone that we're going to end. So um, I, I want to challenge you because I feel like it's not that easy. It, it sounds like you're saying that to deal with the anxiety uh, of death, you just simply don't think about it. Is it really that easy for you? Um, not so much. No. So, so I'm still I, – I, like obviously I don't want to die. Um, but I am not so afraid of it because, because after, like, I mean, like I said, after I realized how thin of a line that we walk between life and death, just in our everyday activities, um, it is not, it's something I'm still like a little scared of, I would say. Um, but I'm not as afraid as I used to just knowing that when it happens, I will have no control over it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's not it's not something that is really worth dwelling on. It's not worth thinking about. And, and it does. I mean, it's it's kind of like that thing. Like you can you can kind of like understand that better through like therapy or through yoga or through psychedelics or you know whatever. But it's it's that perspective on on just life and death in general that has helped me kind of be less afraid of death. Yeah, I think. Um... I like that and I agree because I also have that not to dwell on it not to think about it all the time but there's a second layer that helps me be comfortable with it and I'm not saying this is the only way or the best way or whatever um, but I this opens up a whole nother can of worms which is what makes a life worth living but the way I stave off that anxiety is I make sure that I'm living a life worth living. Yeah. And that way I know that if I were to die, because so this is <laughs> same kind of thing. We could do a whole podcast on just this, but, uh, the way I was able to develop morality for myself, not using uh, a fundamental Christian stance mm-hmm. is I imagined that I was a character in a book, uh, and I was reading that book and also, yes, I understand that, um, the media that I consume, the uh, culture has built up is a Judeo-Christian culture. Yeah, all that, all that stuff. I get it. I get that the, those same values kind of resonate throughout it. But um, for me, instead of the main goal trying to appease some rules that a dude up in space made up or that a dude up in space is just watching me all the time, I imagine that I'm a character in a book and I'm reading that book. How can I mm-hmm. go through every interaction where I don't come off as an asshole? That's actually how it started. This thought experiment <laughs> is uh, I like had to do a lot of confrontation because I worked in a call center and it's like surprisingly cutthroat in a call center. And so I was like, how can I bring this up in such a way that I don't come off as an asshole? And, uh, and then that spread to how can I not uh, like how can I not always look for the best financial gain how can I help other people around me if I have extra energy and time and um, so with that I think the inevitable outcome is that there's a level of me where I'm like how can I end this book just coming off as a good character if someone were to read it so yeah. that's at least my answer I know I, no I think, I think that's great that's, that's, a, that's a reason to live virtuous essentially mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I don't mean to uh, take the concept of death and the concept of fear of death lightly because I, I believe it's it's the biggest problem in modern atheist culture. If you don't believe in an afterlife, then you believe that when you die, it's just over. That's the end of all your existence. How do you, how do you uh, reconcile with that? Mm-hmm. How, are you, how do you feel okay about that? Uh, that's the biggest issue, I think, in modern culture. 
is that how do you feel good about life if you know that when it's over you don't you no longer exist yeah because humans seem to uh or at least the masses kind of like any every individual is different but if you get enough people together they exhibit similar traits like you can almost treat it as one thing that's the whole reason why insurance works um and so it seems like large amounts of humans have these holes in them that for so long were shaped by religion and the church yeah and, and a lot of people go to religion based on those fears of death yeah and exactly yeah how to cope with that because that's i think that's actually probably where that came from is just so too. like on some level understanding that we have this incredible universe of complexity within our minds uh, and then we die and people around us were and also our own fear of dying we're like how can we rectify this and uh, someone's like oh don't even trip dog uh, it, it doesn't matter because we either come back yeah, yeah, or yeah, we're yeah. in an afterlife but in actuality I mean I don't mean to sound like a uh, super cynical but I feel like the experiences of human are mo- not much different than the unique pattern of crumpling up a piece of paper you're not going to crumple up two pieces of paper with the same pattern throughout that crumpled piece of paper. Yeah, it's, it's going to crumple in a simil- similar way, yeah. but it's not going to crumple in the same way. And you also, know, a crumpled piece of paper isn't something to like save and cherish and like it doesn't deserve an afterlife when yeah. I burn it in my fireplace. And so, um, uh, anyway, so with this huge gap that basically uh religion is no longer here for because we're uh, continuously becoming more and more secular i think media and media is now in a unique position to constantly tell us what's good what's bad what we should freak out about what we shouldn't Mm -hmm. and it basically has a bearing on the current events which religion did every sunday or whatever the sabbath of your chosen religion was um and then law i think we no longer have if someone messes up then the whole church community shuns mm-hmm. an individual person instead we just have all right well you're fined yeah a hundred and whatever dollars or you you have to post bail uh and also uh, a degree of like capitalism i, I don't mean to sound like a marxist i, I love <laughs> capitalism i think it's great but uh, also people give themselves up to capitalism they're simply in the in the business to make money and not wealth yeah 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 no i i agree and i i think uh, a, a lot of a lot of capital capitalism is based in ego which again it's not bad but it's a trap uh it, it, if you are so focused on that ego and you're think okay all i want to do in my life is make wealth or make money mm-hmm. um you're gonna get to a point where you identify with your ego which if you lose all your money suddenly you lost your identity you have no purpose in life anymore so i think that's that's a big part of it is uh of maybe reconciling with life you know life and death is uh finding finding fulfillment in life and things that are within yourself and not things that are external yeah. And I, I also, you know, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, like living your life well is also a, a fantastic a technique and um, being okay with death and, and at least, you know, helping yourself to less, be less afraid of death is if you live a good life, if you help people, if you, you know, just be a virtuous person with whatever your definition of that is, uh, you will feel less 
regret, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. in the in in the context of death. Yeah, because that's my biggest fear. I've I've heard like those interviews of people in the. Um, I keep wanting to say morgue, but that's too <laughs> late. Um, but hospice, pre morgue, uh, yeah, right. And uh, they all say that they have a lot of, or not all, I guess, but most of them say that they have a lot of regret mm-hmm. that they did not live life as bold as they could have. And so that's that's also a mixed part of it. Uh, is that I just. Yeah, how can I alleviate regret at the yeah. end of my life? Yeah, because I mean, yeah, if you think about it, like if, if you live to like 70 or 80, you're going to have a lot of things in your life happening. You have a lot of things that could have happened, a lot of things that didn't happen. Yeah, a lot of things that failed. Yep. So so that is that is a definitely a major concern is, you know, when I get to that age, how do I want to feel about my life? And so also uh, kind of what you were saying that if you lose your job and you only tie yourself worth to your job... Uh, then, then by your own definition, you are a failure and now a nobody. Mm-hmm. Uh, by your own definition, like not me calling that person that. And so I, I was kind of like that, as I think a lot of people are. And so that's another reason why I kind of started this. That's another reason why I write is I'm like, I was on a crusade, if you may, to uh, such a strong religious undertone to this tail end of the conversation. But um, I was on this crusade to become a multifaceted, multidimensional person. And uh, mm-hmm. I knew that you can't just tell someone, do that. Fucking go go become interesting. But the what I could do is become curious. I, I like release the, the gates on my curiosity. I'm like, I am, how does that work? How, yeah. What's the view from, I'm sure you <laughs> resonates with you because I know you climb. You're like, what's the view from up there? I, I'm probably one of the few people that have seen this city from up there. Yeah. And then you can see this amazing view. And so, yeah, I'm like, what, what can I learn about? What can I talk about? All of that stuff. So, um, it sounds like we should uh, have a podcast on virtue one of these days. Yeah, yeah, I definitely need to think about it a little more because I, I still don't quite understand like what virtue is to me, and I, I believe that it's subjective to each individual. Oh, and just how they how they uh, arrange their value structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in that case, um, I don't. I don't mean to keep you too late or anything, but um, if I could just kind of partially for my own curiosity. Uh, no right or wrong answer, but what is what is living a good life to you? Um, so I, I definitely believe in the non-aggression principle. Uh, inflict no harm. You know, do no harm. Uh, if you can't help, don't hurt them. Uh, so I, I believe that's a that's a big that's definitely a big virtue in my book. Uh, and I suppose individuality is also a big virtue and being being accepting of your own thoughts and desires and that they are your own uh, and treating them as your own so even if even if you are using your parents thoughts of what your parents wanted you to do you are still thinking i should do this you're still making a choice in that situation so i think it's important to acknowledge um that you, that every action you do, you have that choice. You have a choice. Whether it's someone else's uh, suggestion, you are making a choice. So I think uh, a virtuous life is fully acknowledging your control over your actions. I like that. And you kind of answered, like, how would you kind of give a framework? But what about you? Kind of, what, what are, 
if I, I mean, I don't mean to like walk up and be like, what are your values? But what do you really value in a person? Um, I, I and definitely like, that I like that. Uh, if you can't help, don't hurt. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, the virtue is a very broad spectrum. I think the virtue is a lot of different things. Um, I value things like honesty. Like the the only true way to live your life is honestly. Otherwise, you're gonna have a lot of problems. Um, being kind to one another. Otherwise, you're gonna have a lot a lot of problems. You know. Um, basically, yeah, just living in that. Uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, like the heat death of the universe. What's the what's that called? Entropy. Mm-hmm. So li- living, uh, trying to decrease entropy in entropy in your life so making things better than they were keeping things better than they were maintaining things you know doing things like that so then that's that brings me back to like you know do no harm if you harm someone you are increasing entropy entropy into entropy in the universe uh, and just to those around you Secular. So Sinclair? 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 Eclair <laughs> I recently learned that uh, Eclair is uh, French for lightning. Ooh, so that's cool. How's that's, that come that's about? Cool. But um, how did anything come about? How did any language come about? It's all made up, dude. It is all made up. Yeah, <laughs> I love that line. I said something, and someone was like, "That's a made up line," or "That's a made up word." I'm like, "They're all made up words." <laughs> is it? <laughs> I think I got that from like Archer or some another great show. Yeah, Recommend yeah. Archer and School Life. Just binge watch it if you hear this podcast. Uh, yeah, one, one thing that I would like to say, uh, and then kind of circle back to what we we're talking about, with, uh, attaching your identity mm-hmm. um, to things in your life. Uh, I recently had a conversation with someone who was very depressed, um, and he, like, you know, I won't go too much into detail, but uh, we kind of left, the, when, as we were, like, wrapping up our conversation uh, around a campfire, he was, uh, he came to the conclusion, like, I need a goal. That is what I need in life. I need a goal. And something struck me about that that seemed dangerous. Because if you attach yourself to a goal, if you identify with this goal, if that goal falls through, or even if you achieve that goal, you now have lost your identity. So um, are you a fan of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Mm-hmm. Watch this much? So there's an episode where uh, for Frank, uh, which is you know like millionaire, basically a millionaire character, loses all his money. And he tries to kill himself. Throughout the entire episode, he's just trying different ways to kill himself, essentially. Mm. At the end of the episode, the government bails him out, gives him back all his money, and now he's fine again. He's happy again. So that's, that's kind of... You, you attach your identity to things external, to things around you in your life, or to even things like your personality. You attach your identity to your body, things like that. If you lose any of that, you lose your identity. So maybe that's not the best place to put your identity. Maybe your best, the place, best place to put your identity is more on your base self, more on that observer side of you. That the experience itself, because if when you think about it, your experience of life is the only thing that not, that cannot be taken away from you. The second that is taken away from you, you're you're dead. Your life is over, right? It, it doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. But while we're alive, the only thing that you truly own that's unique to yourself is your experience. Yeah, but that is so hard to, like, sum up. That's so hard to define. Yeah. Because if you were to define it, it would be in relationship to something else. So I um, I don't mean to plug my earlier work, but, but I... But is, a, is our experience actually uh, in relation to other things around us? Is our experience uh, a model of what's around us? You know what I mean? So, like, like are we actually... Like, if... 
Sorry, my, my, my brain's all got all flustered for no, a second. <laughs> let's totally get into that momentarily. But um, so about the whole like your job, your money, whatever, I have uh, another concept, which is uh, the, be mindful of the keys to your happiness. So don't, I know tons of people that have fallen madly in love with someone and that yeah. other person can wreck their life if yeah. they break up because they've given them like all of their keys to their happiness. They, they, yeah, they attach their identity to this one thing. Yeah. And then they lose that thing and now they have no identity. They have no purpose in life. Yeah. And so I think uh, it sounds like identity and keys to your happiness or happiness are very similarly interchanged. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But so for you, I, I appreciate what you're talking about. And it sounds like... It sounds like on some level you deeply admire, as I do admire. I don't know anyone that would be like, oh, monks, they can fucking heat up half the side of their body and Mm. not the other half. They're boring. (laughs) Um, But I admire monks. But I also don't think that's as functional because uh, you – where do you derive self-worth from at that point? Uh, You you already have self-worth. You you are already valuable. You are already worthy. Um, the reason that people don't think they are worthy is because they're the external factors in their life that tell them that they're not worthy. It's their ego that's telling them you're not worthy. Mm. You should change. So I mean, and and like with like the whole identity thing, there are you know you lose all your money. You're like you're a millionaire. You lose all your money. You try to kill yourself. There are plenty of people with less than nothing. You know, there's a there's monks or you know I guess you would call them monks. Um, I can't remember the name for them. The, the there's a certain like um, sect of like I guess I think it's Buddhism uh, where people will go into the wilderness and they will just basically just be homeless dirtbags. They're doing so uh, in this effort of enlightenment. They are putting themselves through immense suffering, immense pain. They don't buy anything. They don't have any money. They simply beg for food. Um, so they they have their their identity is not wound up in anything external it's it's purely internal i guess that's good to at the very least experiment with being familiar with that concept but it sounds like by your own definition of some of the things that you value you would not directly admire them because uh, just on the singular if you can help help they're in a I, position where they can help, but they're I not admire to. them because they are doing uh, what they think or what they're doing. What the, they 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 are really you know they're 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 putting their money where their mouth is. Mm-hmm. You know they they believe in this enlightenment. They believe in nirvana. They believe in you know whatever they believe in, and they are putting themselves through the most extremes to reach that. Um, I think it would be a very fun project if I had the resources and the time yeah. in order to interview uh, like old monks, whether they're active or ex-monks, and uh, and kind of just interview them on their approach, on their mm-hmm. what they struggled with the most, or what led them out of the monastery. And um, but I I do agree. I like for me success. Success is success is. Um, more objective in the sense that it is whatever you that person builds up a value structure and their adherence to their own value structure yeah so like that is my definition to success across the board so i see why you could say that those monks are successful because they have different value structures yes yeah and that sounds like 
self-control. So it sounds like you're actually really valuing self-control. Yes. I, I, yeah, I absolutely do. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, so it's in the Western culture. I, I also value people who, you know, build their, their, uh, empire through, from nothing. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it is a, you are creating a value structure and you're putting your money where your mouth is and you're fulfilling that value, those values. So I don't agree with a lot of what Jordan Peterson says, says, uh, but I'm also not closed-minded. That, that's kind of like mm-hmm. the gatekeeping nature of humanity is that we're like, I don't like that guy. I'm not going to listen to anything <laughs> they say. I think he's a super smart guy. Yeah, yeah. And so what do you think about, uh, I recently heard that he was saying that uh, the more responsibility you take, the more fulfillment you get in life. That's like the key to living a life worth listen, uh, living is um, responsibility. Yeah. Uh, I think it's necessary to take degrees of responsibility. Um, so you shouldn't you shouldn't feel responsible for things that are out of your control. You shouldn't feel responsible for like I don't know like your kids who like twenty you know twenty thirty years old turn twenty or thirty years old got addicted to drugs. You shouldn't feel responsible for that because that was their own person making their own actions. What you should feel responsible about is what you have in your control. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. I did hear a really nice distinction, which is, uh, and possibly this just serves to expand that ring of what you deem within your control, uh, which I, I also, just to clarify, view that the only thing you truly can control is how you respond to things and react to things. But um, Which, yeah, I mean, I'll, just to, not to uh, misdirect you, but like... Uh, that's like where your utmost responsibility lies is in that like individuality. I kind of mentioned before, um, you are responsible for your own choices and your own actions. Only you are responsible for that. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, uh, but so the thing that may expand that sphere of influence is don't take blame for everything or don't take blame for so many things, Yeah, but take responsibility for those because the life of a victim is a hard life. And I, I really Absolutely. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I think almost like the things that you had responsibility for, let's say your children, um, responsibility, failed responsibility at a distance is regret. Yeah. And yeah. so I could see how you'd have. Regret. So that, yeah, I, I believe, yeah, I mean, I, I do also, I, I do agree with Jordan Peterson to an extent uh, that building responsibility will help you gain fulfillment in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but too much responsibility is also a source of stress, right? It's a source of things that make you unhappy. Mm-hmm. So you have to be conscious of what are you taking responsibility for? Should you just re- take responsibility for everything around you? Or should you try to divvy it up? Should you be a little more balanced in your thought process of should, you know, this is something that's worth taking responsibility over. So I'm going to actually take full responsibility and fully commit to this. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I guess uh, if I, how I interpreted it is that take as much responsibility as you effectively can. So yes, I agree. If you took responsibility for everything, you would be a hot mess. Uh, But if you took on, I I had this thought where I heard about this job where this guy and his team make all the screens, a lot of screens in a ton of blockbuster movies. For instance, uh, the interface on Iron Man, like as he Mm. moves around, his design team simply made the screens, that interface on what was displayed on the holograms or whatever. Uh, And his team also, which I haven't even really thought about this, uh, which is part of like good cinema uh, as you don't think about the stuff in the background is uh he his team made the screens in anchorman 
where they had to make the music, the lighting, the uh, basically the filters, and the advertisements of the 70s. And they had their own movies going on basically offset yeah. filming these things. And uh, he was showing his workflow and it was like, his schedule was ridiculous. His schedule was like <laughs> rainbow almost. And um, and I was blown away and like, I, I felt this weird feeling where I was like, oh my God, I can't, uh, like why am I not doing that? And that that's what the whole comparison is the Thief of Joy kind of came into play. But what I realized is that one, delegation is the key to maximizing your responsibility, but also it's about efficiency and bandwidth. Yeah. If you can take on a little bit more, your brain almost kind of like habits become muscle memory. Uh, your brain can almost convert it or move it over into a part of your brain that kind of automates that. And yeah. so he probably has so much automated and then he's able to devote more mental power to his job and his ridiculous schedule. And I'm yeah, not that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's kind of where uh, Jordan Peterson was talking is try taking on incrementally a little bit more responsibility yeah, yeah. and then doing that. So uh, in any like any practical business, you know, you're going to have like with multiple employees, you know, the boss isn't doing everything. That's very important. You, you can't do everything. Mm -hmm. You need to have that delegation of responsibility. Yeah, the chain of command delegation. So kind of just trying to uh, figure out exactly uh, what kind of what you value more, uh, or it might be kind of completely different things, but do you value that where you take on more responsibility or do you devalue the shedding of all of that and simply being yourself? Um. I would say I tend to value simply being yourself more than taking on more responsibility. But it's also, you know, take that with a grain of salt because I also, like I said, I admire Western culture for its ability to increase, you know, to make changes, to make, make positive changes in your life, which that requires responsibility to do so. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, think, I think it's a balancing act. You know, I, I think like a lot of times you should, you should feel fulfilled with yourself just as you are. Yeah, and but you should also take responsibility for improving what you are. You know, you even though you're already fulfilled, I think at least in my in my values, it's my responsibility to try to improve that happiness, try to increase that happiness. And I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but it almost sounds like on some level you're saying that uh, if you are able to get to that point where you are truly happy with yourself with not achieving anything you're simply you're simply yeah. existing mm -hmm. and you try to dissolve that barrier between you and your environment and the world if you're able to do that that simply adds your fucking master chrome dipped tool <laughs> to your toolbox well so I, I think if you reach that point you have two choices you can either become a monk live in the wilderness and be just purely yourself or you can reintegrate into society and build those or, you know and reintegrate your ego build those ego build that those responsibilities again mm. but do so in a conscious way i i love that and i think that's actually part of the key to a lot of it is the being purposeful in what you do in a conscious way um but yeah i feel like buddhist monk masters are huge assholes like zen masters yeah <laughs> and i feel like he would say oh if you ever became a monk and you decided to reintegrate 
were you ever a monk? Yeah, yeah, and, and I think I think that's that's yeah typically the case if you become a monk and you feel that you need to go back to society. Um, you weren't homeless enough. Yeah, you, you didn't you didn't quite get the point, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you if you see the light and you think that you might be better in the dark, or you know, like you know what I mean, like if if you if you find that enlightenment and you think uh, I would be better suited. So uh, what is it? I think um, I think this is actually Buddha. Uh, so there's many different versions of Buddha, but uh, a lot a lot usually. So Buddha is bound to the world. Um, is that Buddha? It's something like that, you know. Um, he, he he cannot he cannot reach enlightenment enlightenment himself because he is bound to humanity. He is bound to help those around him. So I I think if anyone can reach enlightenment, uh, then yeah, that choice needs to be made of of do I pursue this enlightenment only for myself. Or should I try to spread that enlightenment? Should I try to help other people? In which doing so, you're going to take away some enlightenment from yourself. But you know, a, a lit candle can light so many candles. Mm-hmm. So it's it's yeah, it's it's that it's that choice that that people need to make. That's kind of long term for me. Uh, one of the things I derive value out of life is um, earlier you mentioned one of your core values is individuality. I also greatly appreciate individuality. But I do not hold that above everything else. I actually yeah. like if I jet skied, like if I did uh, a thousand, I don't know why jet ski was the first thing that came to <laughs> mind. But let's say I did everything most miraculous life, but didn't actually contribute a lot to humanity. I like I said, I don't believe in like reincarnation or an afterlife. So there's no way I'd be able to know the impact of my life outside of it. But uh, if I didn't purposely contribute to humanity at all. I would not be fulfilled. Yeah, at all. if it's your yeah, if it's in your your impression that you had a net negative, yeah, on the world around you. And I know there's people that get into a bit of philosophy, a bit of economic theory. Um, I know uh, Ayn Rand was big on it, but like if you act completely selfishly, you will inevitably do stuff for humanity. Uh, but then that's kind of where you drift away from the consciously purposely yeah. do something yeah so. and, and i think i think that the the ayn rand philosophy like i, I like ayn rand a lot um but i think um there is uh i, I want to say the word trap again but um i it's there is a point where your natural instincts uh in what you should do like economically um maybe not the best as far as virtue goes mm-hmm. yeah i uh I like that. And yeah, I appreciate it. I, I think that's where Ayn Rand loses me. And mm-hmm. that's where I also kind of second the whole thing of, I, I like your metaphor with them being tools and my metaphor of them being uh, like different colors for you yeah. to paint your picture with. And so Ayn Rand is just a very strong, strict color. And so, but um, yeah, did you... Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to touch on with psychedelics? I think that uh, about wraps it up. Got out what I wanted to get out. Nice. And thank you so much for telling me about that because I know um, I know we didn't get deeply uh, into your uh, depression or anything like that, but I know it Wh- Which a bit. is really not the point Yeah. Uh, when it comes down to it. Because, I mean, like frankly, it was like my most recent uh, psilocybin trip. 
um, is really where I gained a lot of clarity on that subject of ego. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's also why I wanted to share it uh, is because I, I just recently gained clarity and something I kind of mentioned towards the beginning of the podcast. A lot of people who trip claim they know uh, what an ego death is, claim they know what the ego is. I think a lot of people don't. I think a lot of people uh, think that the ego is um, maybe more than it is. Mm-hmm. I agree. And also um, kind of I, I like how a lot of this was try to experience something uh, and these kind of help but I like really heavy handed advice is always tricky because I mm-hmm. feel like people are imagine like splattering a bunch of paint on just a, a whiteboard and having one dot that you're like you have to get here yeah for one dot another one of those splatters if they went up and then to the right a little bit they would hit that dot but if you told someone that was above that dot they would be further away from their goal and so advice is kind of hard and it, that's where it gets like really uh, personal and that's kind of also where uh, the importance of like teach someone not what to think but how to think comes into play because if you can somehow instill mm-hmm. that curiosity uh, whether to try psychedelics or whether to simply not accept that the way things are are how they should be or have to be uh, if you can instill those you just get a person almost like a bloodhound for the truth. You get yeah. someone that starts to actively seek out how to be better. Yeah, ultimately, people are going to do whatever the hell they want. They're going to think and do whatever the hell they want, regardless of what advice you get. But what you can do is help people change their perspective on their situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Cole, thank you for sharing your experience. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And, and thanks for listening to Epsilon Reporting. Good night and good luck.